You could be seated. And if you would, turn to Mark chapter 1 in your Bibles, not Mark chapter 7 or wherever you thought I might have pointed us this morning. Mark chapter 1, we've been studying the gospel according to Mark for some time, and we will look at Mark 7 later today. But I'd like to begin first with Mark 1. As we draw near to Christmas, and as I spend a good deal of time throughout the week in the gospel according to Mark, I'm fascinated by how Mark begins his gospel account, the story, the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. I'm, I'm fascinated by how different it is compared to the other gospel accounts. Matthew and Luke are very similar. They both have chronologies, genealogies rather, toward the beginning. John begins in eternity's past with a theological explanation for Jesus. Mark brings us back to the Old Testament. He's somewhere in between. He doesn't give us any of the birth of Jesus. And he doesn't take us back to eternity's past. He takes us back about 700 years before the coming of Christ. He writes in chapter 1, verse 1, the beginning of the gospel or the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah, and there's back 700 years. And actually, it's a quotation that mixes Malachi and Isaiah. It says, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. That last bit there in verse 3 is, is quoting from Isaiah 40. In Isaiah 40. We read, a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. He's coming. Every valley should be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And then the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. The coming of Jesus means the coming of God. It means valleys lifted up. It means mountains laid low. It means the glory of the Lord revealed. When we celebrate Christmas, we celebrate so much more than a birth. It's not just Jesus' birthday. I saw a horrible Christmas sweater this week. It had a typically American kind of Jesus on the front, and then below it, it says, uh, birthday boy, and Jesus had two thumbs pointing back at himself, like, yeah, this guy. <laughs> Horrible. Christmas is about his birth, but so much more than just his birth. It's about an era, an epic, something special has come, something global has dawned. God is breaking in on this old creation with a new creation. I know it's hard to see. I know here we are 2,000 years later after Christ came and preached the gospel is here and the kingdom of God is at hand and it doesn't seem like his kingdom is here or that it's very big or very powerful. But, but here we are, 2,000 years later, 
in the United States of America, still talking about this one, still worshiping this one. His kingdom will come in greater stages, yet it will consummate one day in a new heaven and a new earth, a full new creation. But the new creation has already begun. That's what Christmas is all about. The waiting is over. Yeah, I know we still wait, but the waiting was over when Mark penned these words. Here's the beginning of the good news. It's the beginning of the end. We have to keep stuff like that in mind as we go through Mark and as we see various stories and miracles. Because the miracles themselves, the stories themselves, the teaching itself that Jesus gives is not an end in itself. It's not just one window into Jesus, to, into his character, into his ways. But it's a window into God's new world. It's a window into the reality that his kingdom has come. So with that in mind, turn to Mark 7 now. Mark 7. Where we see two miracles. But these two miracles represent and indicate far more than the miracles themselves. Each of the miracles in Mark sort of grows and builds upon the others. It teaches new things than the ones before. And so what looks like a simple sermon of taking two miracles in the gospel according to Mark and being wowed perhaps because Jesus heals or casts out a demon and being thankful that he can still do that today. Instead, we see something infinitely greater than just that. We'll see a Gentile mother with a demon-possessed daughter, verses 24 to 30. And then we'll see a Gentile man who is deaf and mute. And as we talk about each of these, we'll talk about their greater significance and the miracles themselves. First, a Gentile mother with a demon-possessed daughter. Look at Mark 7, and let's read, starting in verse 24. It says there, And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went away and found the child lying in bed, and the demon gone. This is a Gentile mother with a demon-possessed daughter. And there are four scenes, there are four parts to this story. The first is a bold request. That's where it begins. Verses 25 and 26 tell us about her bold request. We know what the request was, that her daughter would be healed of a demon possession. But why say that it's bold? Well, look at the way Mark stacks up the description of this woman in verse 26. Now, the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth. She's Syrian. She's a Canaanite. That's what, Mark, uh, that's what Matthew calls her in his account of the same story, a Canaanite woman. 
Remember, as we read, this is in the region of Tyre and Sidon as well. Tyre is the home of that famously bad prophetess, Jezebel. Tyre is home of the Philistines in the Old Testament. Josephus, a Jewish historian around the time of Jesus, he said of Tyre, those people are notoriously our bitterest enemies. They fought against the Jews in the Maccabean Revolt just about 150 years before Jesus' time. You can just do a Bible word search for Tyre and see how it's used throughout the Old Testament. So often it's, it's a symbol for God's coming judgment upon the nations, like Babylon almost. She's of Tyre. She's a Canaanite. She's a Gentile. And she has a daughter who is demon-possessed. Now, we might have compassion on a mom who has a demon-possessed daughter, especially if we're reading Bible stories and Bible stories, but, but there'd be stigma attached to that. You know, surely people would think you did something wrong in raising her, right? You wouldn't go around telling people too freely, yeah, my daughter's demon-possessed. <laughs> it's not like she's a bad driver or something, or, you know, yeah, she likes the boys. No, she's demon-possessed. And yet, and yet she needs help. And so she can't be quiet. But she has everything going against her as she seeks help from Jesus. She's the cultural opposite of that guy named Jairus that we read about in chapter 5. He was a synagogue leader, respected in the community. And he comes to Jesus with a request of another sick daughter. Jesus goes with him to heal his daughter. This woman doesn't have any of those cultural acquisitions Nevertheless, she makes the bold request. She begged him to cast the demon out. Again, Matthew's account says she kept on. She was persisting. The disciples even say, Jesus, she won't stop. Would you please do something? She won't stop begging us. There's a bold request, but then there's a shocking rebuff. A shocking rebuff. Yes, I confess, I used the thesaurus to come up with rebuff. But I think it's a fitting word. Verse 27, he said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. This is shocking. This isn't the Jesus we're used to. Usually people ask of him, and he does. Sometimes he commends their faith. Sometimes he corrects it. But he often responds and responds well and sometimes even with amazing, endearing compassion. Some scholars try to soften the blow of Jesus' words here. They say, yes, dogs in Jesus' time were often feral, outside dogs, mangy mutts, no one liked them. But, but sometimes they were inside animals and Jesus seems to have that kind of dog in view here. Right? Children's bread being thrown to the dogs. Apparently, they're near the kitchen. Maybe this is a doggy or a puppy, not a dog. Eh, there's no way around the fact, though, that a dog is not a child, and Jesus makes that distinction very clear. There are children, who he's referring to as Jews, and then there are dogs. And however you want to say dog, 
She's not a child, she's a dog. There's a verbal punch there. He's delivering a blow. But why? We can understand why Jesus would would give a verbal blow to those Pharisees in chapter 7 who went and, and tried to enforce their traditions on Jesus and his disciples. And he calls them hypocrites. But why her? Well, the first thing we have to realize is that what Jesus said was true. What he said was true. You see, God planned from long ago that he would bless the world through Father Abraham. In Genesis 12, God promised Abraham that in him all the families of the earth would be blessed. It's through this line that the Messiah would come. That's why Matthew and Luke have genealogies. It shows us Jesus' Jewish lineage. He's, he's from Abraham. He's from David. He's from the line of Judah. Even Paul in the New Testament can write things like this in Romans 3. The Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. There's no denying the fact that God set his love upon a nation, whether they were worth it or not, God purposed to set his love upon a nation and to make, him, make that nation the apple of his eye for a time. And this woman is not of those children. But dogs? Call her a dog? This is what we would call today a rather racist Jews in those days spoke of Gentiles as dogs in very racially insensitive, even harsh sort of ways. But the simple fact remains, though, that as Jesus uses it, dogs are outside. Dogs are outsiders. Gentiles are, in God's plan and providence before the coming of Jesus, outsiders. We'll see that in just a minute from Ephesians 2 about what used to be. And Scripture also calls us much worse than, than dogs. In fact, it calls all of us, all of the fallen human race. Sometimes it, words like worms are used of our spiritual worth, or filthy rags, or whores, harlots, sons of the devil, on and on I could go. Sometimes Scripture calls us much, much worse than dogs. But Jesus is also not just speaking truth, he's... he's He's being purposely provocative in order to test her faith. He's drawing her out. He's dropping a bomb to see what she'll do with it. Will she protest? Will she be offended? Will she instead slink away in fear and embarrassment after Jesus says this? Or will she understand her lostness? Will she demonstrate her understanding of her lostness? And demonstrate something of her faith. Well, of course, we know it's the last of those. So thirdly, a faith-filled response. There's a faith-filled response in verse 28. Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat, at the, eat the children's crumbs. If her request was bold, this is even far more bold. This is sort of theological banter. In their day, women didn't do theological banter with rabbis, let alone Gentile women. They wouldn't have approached the rabbi to ask a question. She broached that etiquette already, 
And now she's, she's breaking another, persisting in, in even theological debate. But, but not the prideful kind. This is witty and wise and humble and bold. She sees in Jesus' sentence here, she sees a window. A window that Jesus purposely placed there, of course. The window is in this word, first. Jesus said, let the children be fed first. Well, that implies Jews are getting salvation first, but there's a second. If they eat first, then Gentiles eat after? You see, it implies that Gentiles will eat So there's a chronological priority to what Jesus is saying. And she gets it. She notices that Jesus is not giving a flat-out, eternal, complete exclusion statement. But she doesn't just notice that and then move on and say, okay, well, I guess not now. I'll go home and find out whether it's going to come before my daughter is killed. Notice that she enhances the picture a little bit, this picture of dogs and children in the home. She says, dogs eat of the children's crumbs, not after the meal, but during. You see, Jesus may have been talking about a chronological priority, Jews first, then Greeks. And she's maybe talking about a logical priority. God's intention is to come to the Jews, but... But that is spilling over to the nations. They can be fed even during mealtime. Even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Some dogs are fed after the meal. Some dogs, inside dogs, are fed during the meal, aren't they? You drop anything. We have a bulldog, and... As soon as food hits the floor, she has sonic hearing, and and she will split towards that food, and that's what she sounds like. She just gobbles it up. We think she's part pig. Uh, She gobbles up the food as soon as it hits the ground. So whether we fed her in her bowl or not, if children uh, drop crumbs, uh, the dog eats at the same time. She gets what Jesus is saying, and yet she even builds upon it. Really, she's the first person in Mark to get what Jesus is saying, to get, really, one of his parables, his cryptic sayings. Parables aren't just long stories. Parables are also quick little word pictures. And everyone so far doesn't quite get what Jesus is talking about. The the disciples often follow up with uh, clarification, and it doesn't seem like they really understand even after he clarifies. But this woman gets it. Here's how James Edwards, a scholar, talks of this passage. He says, what an irony. Jesus seeks desperately to teach his chosen disciples, yet they are dull and uncomprehending. Jesus is reluctant to even speak to this walk-on pagan woman, But after one sentence, she understands his mission and receives his unambiguous commendation. How is this possible, Edwards asks. The answer is that the woman is the first person in Mark to hear and understand a parable of Jesus. 
and that she answers Jesus from within the parable, that is, in the terms by which Jesus addressed her, indicates that she's the first person in the gospel to truly hear the word of Jesus. I think that's spot on. That's what's going on here. And so now we can get a little clearer picture about why Jesus spoke like he did to her in the first place. We said it was to test her faith. We said it was maybe to, to see whether she understood her lostness. But remember, Jesus knows this stuff already. He's God. He frequently shows that he knows someone's thoughts before they speak anything. And so I think Jesus engaged in this conversation not for himself, but for us. For those who, who heard it the first time, this is a teaching moment for us all. And her clarity and confidence is remarkable. It's model, and it's in stark contrast to other reactions to Jesus that we've seen. Not just the disciples who don't understand Jesus' teaching, but the Pharisees. Oh, we saw that last week in chapter 7. They're scandalized by Jesus and his refusal to follow their traditions. You've got religious leaders who are opposed. You've got disciples who frequently don't get him. You've got family members who are embarrassed by him. You've got neighbors who think he's just a guy. And then you've got this Gentile woman from Tyre and Sidon, a Syrophoenician woman, a Canaanite with a demon daughter. And she has amazing clarity about Jesus' plan and amazing confidence that she can have some part in it. Thank God this is recorded for us. Thank God Jesus said what he said. And thank God she said what she said in response. And then there's a significant result. It ends with a significant result. She's commended. She's sent away in peace in verses 29 to 30. Jesus has already healed her daughter. Notice how the miracle itself is very much in the background of this whole scene. In other exorcism scenes... There's a confrontation between Jesus and a demon, or demons plural. There's sometimes a dialogue between Jesus and a demon. In other healing miracle stories, there's a bit of a process involved most of the time, right? Jesus speaks the healing into existence, or he touches and it happens. Or at least he's there. At least he's there. He's not even at the place of the healing when the healing takes place. He doesn't say, be healed, girl, from far away. And she is. He says nothing. He touches nothing. He's not there and she's healed. Why? Why is it told like this and why did it happen like this? Because the focus is on Jesus' dialogue with the mother, not the miracle itself, important as that is. It's very important to know that Jesus has power over demons, over Satan. But we've already learned that lesson if we've been studying Mark together. Now it's 2.0. Jesus not only has power over demons, but this exchange with the woman tells us that God's appointed time for global salvation, global glory, a healing of the nations 
it has come. Isaiah 66 talked about a time that is coming. The time is coming to gather all nations and tongues, and they shall come and see my glory. That's happening here now. That's happening in, in Mark 7. It's happening as Jesus goes across the Sea of Galilee to Gentile territory and proclaims the kingdom there. As he heals a man who has a thousand demons. These promises of old are coming. Like what it says in Psalm 87. I love this. It says, among those who know me, I mention Rahab in Babylon, a Gentile person, a Gentile place. Behold, Philistia of the Philistines and Tyre with Cush. It will say of them, this one was born there. Where? Jerusalem. Jerusalem. It's like there is good as born there. Rahab mine. She's as good as born there. Babylon one day will be his. It's as, it's as like they were born there. Tyre too. That's happening here. And if we go to the other side of the cross and resurrection, we read things like this in Ephesians 2. Paul writes this to Christians. Remember that you were at that time, that is before Christ, you were separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Paul goes on to say, in Christ the two have now become one. He has made one new man. So now there is no division based on ethnicity or heritage. Nothing external, in fact, but simply, simply faith is the thing that identifies us with the people of God. Faith is the thing alone, through the blood of Christ, that will get us to heaven. And Revelation 5 speaks of that heavenly scene it says of Jesus, by your blood you ransomed people from God, from every tribe and language and people and nation. That's where this thing is going. That's why we do missions. That's why we send missionaries to North Africa. There aren't many Christians there. There aren't many Christians there at all. And so we go to where he's not yet known that his name and fame might spread and his salvation might, might spread with it. He's far more than a healer. And this is far more than a healing. It means that God has come. It means he is gathering the nations to himself. It means his plan is coming to fruition. Now let's look at the second scene, and we'll look at this one more quickly. A Gentile man who is deaf and mute. Look at verse 31. Then he returned from the, the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment, and they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears, and after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephetha, that is, be opened. 
and his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. A Gentile man who is deaf and mute. He's most likely a Gentile. This is Gentile territory. But this story does more than just tell us of another Gentile who is healed by Jesus, helped by Jesus. It begins, though, with a desperate request. A desperate request. That's the emphasis of these first couple verses of the story. His helplessness is what's emphasized. The friends that are in the story, they're just called they in Mark. These people help this man, and they help this man bringing him to Jesus. They're not in the story so that we would be encouraged to bring our friends to Jesus. That preaches very well, doesn't it? These people brought their friend to Jesus. You should bring your friend to Jesus, and you should. But that's not why these people are in the story. You see, these are the days long before sign language. This man can't hear or speak. I imagine if I had been born deaf, that would be a trial in my life, and it would be a hurdle that I would be overcoming. But I'd learn sign language, and, and I would be a productive member of society. Not so in these days. This person is helpless. He not only needs a healing, but he needs others to help him to get to the healing. He needs them to ask. And they don't just ask for it. It says, they begged him to lay his hand on him. A desperate request. But then secondly, we see a gentle response. Unlike his response to the woman, which was for her good and for our good. But it was gruff. Here there's a gentle response. Verse 33, it says, taking him aside from the crowd privately. Any one of those phrases would paint the picture, but Mark uses three for repetition. Taking him aside from the crowd privately. Is this because he doesn't want the crowd to see the miracle? Perhaps. That's part of the story. Is it because of just the noise? Maybe. Was it for the intimacy of the moment with the man? Maybe, indeed, it was. We can't be sure, though. We also can't be sure why Jesus touched him as he did. Verse 33 says, He put his fingers into his ears, and after spitting, touched his tongue. Now, you've got to remember, Jesus doesn't need to touch anyone in order to heal them. That point was made in the previous story. He doesn't need to speak for some kind of healing to happen, as was proven in the previous story. But often Jesus does touch and often Jesus does speak a healing into existence. And he speaks not because there's power in his words. He knows the magic words which work. It's because there are listeners. There are people out there. He speaks for people to hear. But this man is deaf. And so Jesus even more intentionally with this guy, communicates through touch. It's as if Jesus did primitive sign language with him. Here's what I'm going to do. 
Here's a, uh, you know, he's got some spit. I know you're grossed out about the hygiene of this or lack thereof, but that would have not been quite their concern back then. Jesus put spit on his tongue and then says, Ephatha, Ephatha. But not before sighing. Don't miss that. He, he sighed. We're not sure why he sighed. There's a lot we're not sure about in, in this story. It could be that Jesus was grieved over the brokenness of the sin-cursed world. He sighed at Lazarus' death. He sighed when he was in the garden before he was betrayed. And here he sighed. We don't know why. But he said, Ephatha. That is, be opened. Just like God said at creation. Let there be light, and there was. Here, be opened, and it's so. His ears were opened. His tongue was released. And he spoke plainly. Thirdly, there's kind of a, a parenthesis here, what we might call a hopeless restraint. In verse 36, it says that Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. Now this command of silence has happened before in Mark. But every time before, it's been in a Jewish region. And that makes more sense. The Jews were anticipating the Messiah to come, but, but most people in Jesus' time had a political Messiah, a military Messiah in mind. And if they start saying, Messiah, 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 this thing's going to get out of hand fast, and they're going to have a wrong kind of Messiah in mind. So Jesus often said, don't speak of this. Don't say who I am. Don't say what just happened. But Mark 7 isn't in Jewish territory. It's Gentile territory. It's not clear why Jesus says to be quiet here. One explanation is simply that regardless of where he is and who is around him, Jew or Gentile, the miracles can't be fully understood until after the resurrection. That happens often where Jesus says, you don't get this now, but you'll get it later. You'll understand. And after the resurrection, they got it. One commentator says, these miracles symbolize the Christian faith, sight, hearing, resurrection, which become full realities only after the death and resurrection of Jesus. These physical cures cannot really be spoken of with understanding at this stage because they point forward to events and spiritual changes which are still in the future. I think that's why Jesus gave this restraint, even though it was a hopeless one. One thing we should be reminded of here is that Jesus is simply irrepressible. The experience of Jesus is simply irrepressible. Even though he says, be quiet, they don't. They, they won't. And it should also remind us Christians that this commandment, tell no one, has been flipped on its head long ago. We're to tell everyone. And if someone says, tell no one, uh, we should have hopeless. Uh, it would be a hopeless restraint. We should have boldness. Lastly, let's sum it up like this. There's a momentous result at the end of the story. And really, it's all the way through. You see, the last verse of this section, verse 37, says that they were astonished beyond measure, saying, he has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. 
What's interesting here is not their amazement. Uh, It's not that he has done all things well, which again is like God at the beginning of creation. He made everything, and behold, it was all very good. That's all important and good, but, but really, if you notice, there's a repetition about deafness and being mute. That's the emphasis of this, deaf and mute. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. If we were stacking this up against other miracles that have happened so far in Mark, we would say, eh, not the greatest. That's not a thousand demons. I've seen a thousand demons get hurled out of a guy. I mean, the healing of the, the woman, the healing of the man. I've seen a girl get raised from the dead. Why, why say this? He's done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Well, back in verse 32, when the man's condition was described, there it says, a man was, who was deaf and had a speech impediment. A speech impediment. That's probably worse than what we think of as a speech impediment. It probably means he barely could talk, if at all. It's a unique Greek word. Magilalos. It's fun to say. Magilalos. I don't usually share Greek words with you. Uh, but, but this is an important one. It's the only place in the New Testament where that word is used. Right here in Mark 7. This man was deaf in Magilalos. His tongue wouldn't work. In the Greek version of the Old Testament, the word is used, but again, only once. When things like this happen, preachers get real excited, right? Scholars get real excited when there's a word that's only used once in all the Old Testament and then used again and only once in all the New Testament. You've you got to put those together. That is not accidental or coincidental. It's in Isaiah 35. Let's turn there as we wrap this up. Isaiah 35, turn there, and I'm going to read the whole chapter, something I wouldn't advise another preacher to do, to read a whole chapter from Isaiah at the end of a sermon, but you'll see it's so beautiful and rich and speaks of this age, this era, this epic, this thing that Jesus was bringing in. And one of the key features of this new time, this new thing, this kingdom of God that's come in Jesus is that the deaf hear and the magilalas speak. That's in verse 5 and 6, but let's go to verse 1. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall become abundant. And rejoice with joy. It shall blossom abundantly, rather. Verse 2. And rejoice with joy in singing. The glory of Lebanon. That's where Tyre is, by the way. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it. The majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord. The majesty of our God. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart. Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute 
the Magilalas will sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. By the way, that's why this church is named Desert Springs Church, because of passages like this. The burning sand shall become a pool, and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes. And a highway shall be there, and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come upon it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransom of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Oh, Jesus is far more than a miracle worker or a good teacher. He is the one bringing in Isaiah 35. Yes, indeed, more of Isaiah 35 is yet to be realized. Just read Revelation 21 and 22 to see it described there in, in equally symbolic and glorious ways. But it has come now. The kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus is on his throne. He is reigning. Gentiles now can come in. Not based on externals. Not based on human effort. But only through faith in his blood for the forgiveness of sins. Do you hear it? Do you, do you see it? Remember that parable Jesus taught at the beginning of this? In Mark 4, the parable of the four soils. It's all about seeing and hearing and understanding. Some get it, some don't. This man in Mark 7 is like an illustration of all that. He, he's deaf and mute. He doesn't see and he can't speak. And Jesus opens up his ears to hear and he loosens his tongue to speak. He will eventually do that for the disciples who are around him. One day they will speak on his behalf because they will have heard. They can't speak until they hear. And they're not hearing. You notice in these two stories you read today, there's no mention of the disciples. They're clearly there. They're with Jesus, no doubt. But, but there's, no, there's not even a plural they. Like they got out of the boat or they went into town or they did this. It's he, it's he. They're there, but they don't speak. They're there and they're watching, but they don't yet get it. Do you? Do you get it? You know, we're all, we're all born spiritually blind and deaf. These are illustrations of, of what we all are spiritually, what we all need spiritually. We need eyes to see. We need ears to hear. We need him to loosen our tongue that we might sing his praise and speak of his ways in all the world. Do you get him? you have the right Jesus? And do you see his coming as something far more glorious than just a birth, than just good teaching, just interesting stories, just the center of Christmas? He's the king, and he's on his throne, and he reigns now. Isaiah 35, friend, has come. And yet more is still to come.
Let's pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, we thank you for your glorious reign, invisible as it is right now. We know it's true and real as Christians, we do. We know you reign in our hearts. We know you reign in this meeting right now. Any bit of obedience we give you, any worship we offer to you, is an expression of your glorious reign and rule in our hearts and in this world. We long for others to enter in. We long for others, through your blood, to place themselves under your glorious lordship and care. Lord, we pray for your reign to spread in this world. We pray for your reign to be more and more realized in our lives, in our hearts. We want to give you your praise. We want to give you your due. We want to give you the obedience that you deserve, the honor that is yours. And yet we confess we don't want to give it to you nearly enough. Again, we say we believe, help our unbelief. And may your kingdom come. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Until then, give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our, our sins. And Lord, your kingdom, may it come. May your reign rule in this world and in our hearts for your glory and namesake.